be continuing in our series uh, entitled Wonder uh, as we've been looking at Christmas kind of from the, the light uh, of the amazing aspects of God's design uh, and everything that he has, has brought together uh, in his plan, uh, not only in creation, but then also looking at uh, the plan for uh, Jesus Christ to be coming uh, at Christmas. The first week we kind of looked at uh, DNA, uh, God's unique design where he knit each one of us together. Uh, the second week we took a look at prophecy uh, and how Jesus, the story of him and salvation coming was woven throughout the Old Testament and heading into the New Testament and including us. Uh, and today we're going to be continuing on and looking at a, the reason why all of this was necessary. Uh, and so let's take a moment and pray before we continue. Father, we come before you uh, this morning on this Sunday before Christmas. Uh, when many more people are turning their eyes uh, towards you, their hearts towards you, even if it's just for the season, uh, Lord, we pray that your beauty would captivate them. Uh, that, Father, there's so many lights up, there's so many decorations, there's gifts, there's all of these other things, and all of it uh, was in first intended to represent you and to celebrate what you have done for us. That the light of the world came to reveal salvation to mankind, that the gift of your Son was most precious. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray that uh, through this season, uh, would you captivate our hearts towards you? Uh, would more people recognize the beauty and wonderful uh, aspects of the gift of Jesus Christ uh, as we celebrate Christmas and his birth? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, today, again, we're going to be looking at the reason why uh, Christmas was uh, necessary uh, and then why Christmas and Easter are actually like the pivotal moment uh, within human history. But to kind of understand why, we need to go back to the very beginning, and we've had some videos throughout this series. Uh, this video will be kind of be talking about our beginnings, and so we'll share that this morning. You ever wondered where the universe came from? The standard view of the Big Bang sits in stark contrast to what we read in the book of Genesis. Now, many Christians and others put the two together, it really doesn't fit, and that's a whole other video series. So let's take a look at this. When you think about the origin of the universe, we only have three options. It was created by something, it was created by nothing, or it wasn't created at all, meaning it has always existed. Let's take a look at those three options. It was created by something. What was that something? Well, the universe represents the entire natural world. It couldn't have created itself, so it had to be created by something else beyond the natural world. Well, that would be the supernatural world. You can't have that. That's separation of church and state, right? So we got to throw that out. Not for scientific reasons, but that one just isn't light. Okay, second option. It was created by nothing. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Nothing can't do anything. Nothing is nothing but nothing. So we'll just throw that one out, right? Well, for now, we'll be back. The third option is the universe has always existed. If it's always existed, it didn't have a beginning. If it didn't have a beginning, you don't need a beginner. If you don't need a beginner, you don't need God. That was accepted by many people because they didn't have to explain the origin of the universe. But there were reasons that had to be thrown out scientifically, including Edwin Hubble, who discovered evidence for redshift that looks like the universe is expanding. Well, if it's getting bigger and bigger over time, that means it was smaller and smaller in the past until you get down to an inspect where the entire universe 
was contained in a speck, maybe the size of an electron. Well, there are problems with that. They realized the universe did have a beginning, but another reason is the second law of thermodynamics. That says basically that everything is running downhill over time. If the universe has always existed, it would have run out of gas a long time ago. So those are two strong reasons to believe the universe has not always existed. So then we might have to go back to what was created by something. Well, again, we can't do that because that's a religious concept, right? And you got to get that out of the school system. That just leaves us where the universe was created by nothing. And most secular scientists today go with that option. And it spawns some very bizarre ideas. One example is Stephen Hawking. He was arguably the world's leading theoretical physicist. Passed away last year. He was an atheist. So he had to explain, how do you get something out of nothing? His response was, because there is something such as the law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. But wait a minute. Let's take a look at what he just said. Forget about how smart he is. What did he just say? He said, basically, because there is something, the universe will create itself out of nothing. Well, wait a minute. If you have something, you don't have nothing. And what was that something he referred to? The law of gravity. Well, what is the law of gravity? It's not a physical thing. It's a description of how the universe operates. But you can't have a description of how the universe operates unless you have a universe to describe. But if you have a universe to describe, you're not creating it out of nothing. So there's an example of a statement made by a truly brilliant scientist that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The more we look at science, the more we understand this universe, including our lives, must have been supernaturally created. And we are just starting to scratch the surface looking at the wonders of God. So we're just taking a look at, you know, this amazing aspect of design throughout our series. Uh, the way that God has designed all things to happen. We, we talked about how close the earth was to the sun and uh, the proportion of the earth to the sun being uh, the size of a nickel compared to a, the door in the back. And all of that in perfect um, aspects in order to be able to provide life from the sun, for, for life to grow, for us to even be breathing within this room. Uh, all of it coming together in this beautiful design by God. And, and when you take a look at the book of Genesis and, and just understanding the power of God by simply speaking things into existence, the sun that we rely on for everything, let there be light. The birds that we see flying over us, you know, let there be uh, birds of the air, fish of the sea, let there be animals on land. God takes and designs and creates all of these things by the power of his word. This is our beginning, but then we come to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and, and we need to work through this and, and how we get to the point where we actually desperately need a Christmas to happen, for a Savior to come. But in the beginning here, in verse 26 of Genesis 1, after he's spoken all things into existence, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our 
likeness. And so again, this is God saying, let us, as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, uh, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the bird of the sky, and every creature that crawls on earth. And so here we have God uh, creating this, uh, and then at the end of it, creating man and woman uh, in his own image. Nothing else in creation is said to be made in the image of God other than human beings. And then he gives us this world that he created. There's nothing that we did to to deserve it or to earn it, but rather he creates all these things. And and after all is done, he's saying, I want to create something in my image for them to enjoy and and actually rule uh, everything else that I've created here on this. Have you ever taken the time to imagine what it would have been like to live in the Garden of Eden? Uh, Just the beauty around you? Like, we get some glimpses of this if we go to uh, a wonderful park, you know, and we see everything green and growing, or we go to, uh, you know, a national um, park where we have, like, the Grand Canyon or things like that. But uh, have you ever sat and realized, like, in the Garden of Eden, there was no concrete? There was no electrical wires or cell phone towers. There was no skyscrapers. All of it was just this beauty of nature as God created it. And then to have peace with the animals of creation. Just literally on my way here this morning, uh, as I'm driving, I see this little squirrel, you know, kind of sitting there at the side of the road, and it's looking at me and looking across, looking at me, and I'm like, it's going to go. And it darts out, and so I'm, you know, I'm slowing down on my brakes, and then it just decides to, like, mosey across in front of my car. You know, but, but if I wanted to go up and like hang out with a squirrel, it would go up the nearest tree. You know, let alone come face to face with a, a lion. You know, and be like, hey, how is it going today? Like, why don't we go for a walk together? I don't think it would go so well. But like, what pet would you have? Like, if you have any pet in creation, you ever think about, anybody like think about that? Maybe I'm weird. Favorite, what's your favorite animal out there, anybody? A giraffe. That would be a really cool pet. You know, like, like there's only apples at the top of the tree. Could you get those for me? That'd be great. And their, their tongues are black. Did you know that? Like they have black tongues. All right. Any, anybody else? A tiger? That would be really cool. You know, instead of sitting there. We went uh, to the zoo in Madison once. I think it was a lion, though. And, and Ellie was there, and she's standing up at the glass. And it's so cool because you get the tigers, uh, I think it was lions, that were like just on the other side of the glass. And, and you're like, you can't touch them. You know, obviously it's for safety. But, but she's sitting there, and, and you could watch uh, one of the lions start stalking up close to the glass. Uh, and we've got a video of it sitting there on the other side of the glass, just pawing at the glass. Uh, and my, here's my daughter, like, inches away from this massive lion. And I'm like, this is kind of cool, but, like, what would it have been where 
we could have lived in the Garden of Eden and this glass wouldn't have had to be there and I didn't have to worry about this. It would have been an amazing place to leave. The, the, the food that you need provided for. Uh, Jesse, you, you, you farm and garden, but in that sense, like, it was just there. Like, here's an apple tree. Like, go pick apples for lunch if that's what you feel like. You walk around and everything that God created, there was no toiling for it. It was just provided for you to enjoy. And so you wouldn't have to worry about food. You wouldn't have to worry about wild animals. Everything is beautiful. How about this one? No aches or pains. Right? So like you get out of bed in the morning and you put your feet down for the first time. I'm experiencing that now a little bit. (laughs) That would never happen. Like how awesome would that be? No aches or pains. No sickness. No illness. No death. Like, like just a, a perfect life in the world that God created as he created for it to be. But there was one rule. There was one rule for Adam and Eve, man and woman, that God created in his image. He said, this is all for you. Be fruitful and multiply and enjoy. Just don't do this one thing in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. One rule. Otherwise, enjoy. Every- you want to go swim with dolphins? Like, go swim with the dolphins. You want to swim with sharks? Like, go swim with sharks. It's fine. Like, enjoy all of this. Just this one thing don't do. It seems simple enough. Like we put ourselves in that place and, and kind of in my mind, I'm like, ah, no problem. But we have no idea like, like how long they lived that way. It was certainly before they had uh, any children. Uh, but there became a deceptive enemy who was seeking his own glory and looking to rebel from God. And in doing so, wanted to bring as many with him as possible. And so we see this uh, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 where Satan says to the woman, did God really say, he's in the form of a serpent, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. You see what he's doing here already? Like we know him uh, as the liar, the thief, and the destroyer, and he begins this argument by saying, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Any tree? Like no apples, no pears, nothing. Any tree? And so he's already starting to put doubts, and he's using an argument that that is meant to look at God as being unreasonable. And so the woman says to the serpent, we can eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, he will not die, the serpent says. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so here is this manipulation and this temptation that again is, is casting doubt on God, that God has their best interests in mind because what he's saying is, well, God knows that if you eat this, you're going to be like him and you're going to be wise and you're going to be able to determine what is good and what is evil. 
And, and he doesn't want you to do that. And that's why he said, you can't eat of it. He begins to sow these seeds of doubt, of this desire for control within humanity. Instead of simply relying on God who's given Adam and Eve everything that their heart could possibly desire, they still wanted control. They still wanted the, uh, the ability to choose for themselves which is good and what is bad, what we ought to do and what we should not do. And the reality is that humankind is still in that struggle. That's still our greatest temptation is to sit there and want to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. To be able to say, this is sin and this isn't sin. To choose for ourselves what we can excuse and reason away or what we decide is right. We see the shifting morality of our society from decade to decade revealing this. What is glorified now was condemned 30, 40 years ago. Was acceptable now was shunned then. Even to the point of creation here where God is saying, let's make them in our image, man and woman, two genders, male and female, in the image of God. Now we have a society that's pushing and saying there are infinite genders. We're choosing for ourselves what is right. We're going to create this new concept of there is infinite genders between male and female. You can be anything in between. And there's arguments even being made for this to be put on license plates, birth certificates. And it's all mankind saying, we want to decide for ourselves what is right. The same original temptation is what we struggle with. And so Adam and Eve facing the same thing in verse 6. says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and was very desirable for obtaining wisdom. So again, I think the greatest temptation for Adam and Eve in this moment wasn't just, oh, here's this one thing that we've never tasted before. Like we've got papaya and we've got kumquats and we've got dragon fruits and apples and carrots and beets and onions and asparagus. And like, imagine going to Woodman's and like, here's all this stuff that you can have. And then there's this one thing you've never tried before. I don't think that's the temptation that they were facing. I think right here where it says she saw it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. I want wisdom. I want control. And and actually, it was the beginning of idolatry. Instead of saying, I trust God for everything. He's given us all of this. I trust Him for all of eternity. I trust Him for all of wisdom. I kind of want it myself. And it was the beginning of self-idolatry. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. Gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
And so we have this, this beginning, this temptation, this desire for self-idolatry to start wanting to trust our wisdom instead of God. They, they fall into this temptation. They commit the one thing that God said, don't do. And then their first reaction was to hide from him, which again, we struggle with. When we realize that, that we are looking to ourselves, when we realize that we're rebelling against God, we tend to either hide instead of running to him, or we just decide to run with it and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep going with this concept of my way is better than God's, and, and we just walk away from him and ignoring what he's calling us back to. Through this action, sin entered into the world, and we see its results. Romans five twelve puts it this way. Uh, sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death spread to all people, because all sinned. Now last week, we were kind of talking about this concept of, of prophecy within Revelation chapter 21, that, that there's a day coming where Jesus comes back, and there is no more death. And so we sit there and we try to, to conceptualize what would it be like to never experience death again or somebody that we know dying. We ever realize back in Genesis, death never existed in the first place. There was no death and there will be no death. But in the middle, our lives are surrounded by it. The squirrel this morning in front of my car was inches from death. And it was grace and mercy that caused me to step on the brake instead of the gas. And, and my wife next to me, she'd never forgive me. But death is surrounding us. It happens all the time. And in this, it's because of sin. It's something that we have inherited through Adam and Eve. This, this imperfection of sin and death. And through that, it has come down from generation to generation to generation uh, until we're sitting here today. And we've all experienced it. We've experienced the, the death of a loved one, the death of a friend. Um, I remember early on in my life, it was people that I don't... Uh, I didn't even remember knowing. It was people that my parents knew, but we went to the funeral as a child. And uh, I remember sitting there and, you know, walking up to the casket for the first time. And, and I swore I saw the person breathe. Because we're so used to seeing people with their chests moving up and down that to see somebody in death lying there with no breath in their body, it's almost as though our minds trick us. And it looks or it feels like they could be breathing. I think part of that is because death is foreign. Death didn't exist and it will not exist. But as we go through our life, as we get older, we start to see grandparents, friends. Um, my junior year, uh, there was two people in our class that were killed just because they were crossing a road uh, and somebody didn't see them. Another one was knee surgery. And he just went in for knee surgery and death happened. And so it's a result of this sin, and it's something that Christmas, that the coming of Christ, was needed in order to correct. Death existing is a wrong. It's, it's a result of sin, which is why Jesus Christ coming to die was needed. God's rescue plan in Jesus. We see in John chapter 3.16, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son, 
so that everyone who believes in him will not perish or will not die, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And so in this sense, what what this is talking about is because of that original sin in the Garden of Eden, that, that every subsequent generation of humanity was born with that sin into rebellion against God, that, that the course of humanity was heading towards destruction and condemnation and an eternity in hell separated from the love of God. And something needed to happen in order to change that course, to rescue some, those who believe in Jesus Christ, in verse 18, are not condemned because they find salvation through Jesus. By believing, that word believe in the Greek is the word pistis. It's to, to have trust, to have absolute faith in, to declare Jesus Christ as our Lord. And in that, finding adoption to the family of God and rescue from this life of death. But what it also says here, anyone who does not believe, does not trust in Jesus Christ as Lord is already condemned because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. It's just pointing out it was a pre-existing condition. We were born into that. And if we believe, we're rescued out of it. If we don't believe, we stay where we are in this blindness of the first temptation of we want to choose what is good for us, what is right, what is wrong. I'm going to trust myself instead of looking to trust God. So he has this rescue plan in order to send his son down uh, onto earth in order to rescue the world. Have you ever thought about that? Like, like, what was it like for Jesus through this whole thing? Like, it kind of blows our mind a, a little bit to consider that he has existed into eternity past, that he spoke all things into his existence. So, so here's Jesus saying, let there be light, and the, the Son exists. They go through all of creation, him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Like, let's make man and woman in our image. And so they take dust and they form man and breathe life into him and then take a rib and form woman and and like, wow, it is very good. Enjoy, multiply, fill the earth. And and so here's Jesus like, "Let's, let's see what happens. Just don't do this one thing. And as we saw, as soon as they did, the first prophecy was put into place in Genesis where God said that he would come. And rescue mankind. I just imagine Jesus looking down and and watching the course of human history through Genesis. Seeing Cain and Abel in the garden as Cain picks up a rock to kill his brother. And just knowing this is the result of sin. This is the result of disobedience. This is the result of mankind wanting to choose for themselves what is right and what is wrong. To see war after war, murder after murder, abuse after abuse. Waiting for the right time. For the appointed time. 
And then here's Jesus ready to step down into this world to begin this rescue operation. And I can't imagine what was going, what he was thinking, what he was considering. This idea of, like, this is not what was designed. This was not what was intended for mankind. And I'm going to step down into that world of murder and death and darkness and sin. And so then he's born as a baby. Grows up. Is dependent on a mother for feeding him. For changing his diapers. Becomes a toddler that the creator of the world spoke lions into existence, needs to learn how to walk, to, to feed himself, plays with little carved animals that Joseph made for him, is the joy of his mother, grows up as a child, runs around with his friends, makes little projects, wants to help out dad in the wood shop grows up into a teen, a young man, and all of it heading with the purpose towards his death. That was the very intention from the very beginning. Speaking all things into existence, sitting up there in the glory of heaven, looking at the mess of humanity and earth on the ground with the intention of, I'm going down there in order to suffer and die but I'm doing it out of love and willingly choosing to enter into that. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It tells us uh, we have a large cloud of witnesses, and so that is, uh, again, talking about the, the faithful, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, that we have this large group of people who have trusted and followed after God and how God has blessed them in their lives. And, and even though there's difficulty, he was there to rescue them. And so that's what it's talking about, is we have these witnesses of people of faith that have trusted in God, and God has been faithful. Since we know that, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that's so easily ensnares us and again I would like to say that I think it's rooted in that idea of I want to choose what is right and what is wrong I want to choose what is good for me and what is bad for me instead of trusting God with it let's lay aside that temptation to be in control of our own lives and our own destinies and submit to the Lord let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. So it wasn't just this concept of like, oh, I love humanity so much, I'm willing to go down there and, and it's going to suffer and it's going to be painful. Because there was prophecies pointing towards the fact that he would be hung upon a tree, upon a cross. That in Isaiah, it's talking about not even being recognized. And it's fulfilled when he's beaten to the point where he's almost unrecognizable. They prophesied that that was going to happen. And so he knows that's what's going to happen when I come down into earth in order to live this life to rescue the people that I love. And it wasn't just a motivation of joy, or rather of love, but it was for the joy that lay before him. 
this idea of being able to come down, to go through all of this in order to have you with him for all of eternity. The idea of spending eternity with you gave him so much joy that he was willing to endure the cross. To rescue you. In Luke chapter 4, one of the first times that he announces himself, uh, it's in Nazareth in verse 16, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up to read. And so the scroll of Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it and he found the place where it was written, which he helped inspire. The scroll or the, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives of recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Everybody in the synagogue's eyes were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. This idea of coming into the world in order to preach the good news, the gospel to the poor, to the spiritually poor, to those who need rescue, to proclaim to the captives and give them release from sin and death. The course that we were all on before the gospel. Recovery of sight to the blind. He did this physically at times by spitting into the dirt and making mud and wiping it on somebody's eyes and they were able to see, but even more so to the spiritually blind. Because before Jesus came, before this gospel was revealed that our only hope through salvation or for salvation is through Jesus Christ, we were stumbling in the darkness that we inherited from Adam and Eve trying to say, this way seems right to me. I'm going to use my idea of what is good and evil to choose for myself. And we were spiritually blind and heading towards destruction. But Jesus came in order to change all of this. His first sermon on the Sermon of the Mount reveals the path to salvation in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, he's been going around uh, kind of leading up to this and he's been ministering he's healed a couple people he's got a crowd following after him at this point uh, he goes he says I, when he saw the crowds in verse 1 he went up the mountain and he sat down I, like, this is one of those things that I love to imagine as well like, like you're sitting there and you hear this rumor of this guy that, that has been healing people and all of a sudden he walks by and there's like a crowd following after him. And you're like, what's going on? Like, I'm going to go and see. And, and so you start to follow the crowd as well. And he goes up onto this mountain, onto this hill with this crowd following behind. In scripture, it says there were thousands of people. To be part of that and, and watching him lead this group up onto the hill. And all of a sudden he turns around and, and sits down. And everybody sits and there's just quiet. What is he going to say? What is he going to do? The first words that come out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This, this word poor in this passage uh, is almost that sense uh, of homelessness. 
but where you have nothing. You're, you're utterly destitute. You have nowhere to go. You have no food. You have no shelter. Uh, the only hope that you have uh, is the, the grace and mercy of somebody else in order to help you in that situation. And, and so he's saying, blessed are those who are spiritually homeless. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Spiritually homeless, where, where you recognize, I've got nothing spiritually. I've got nothing to offer. I can't earn my way into heaven. I can't earn God's love. I'm utterly dependent upon his grace and his mercy because I have nothing of myself. Because of sin and because of death. And Jesus says those people are blessed because they recognize they need him. It's not this choice anymore of like, this seems right to me, this seems wrong. That's us trying to do it in our own strength. Uh, those who are spiritually homeless have come to a point where they're like, I can't do anything else. It continues on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I think this mourning is talking about those who recognize that they're spiritually homeless, bankrupt, and mourning over the fact they can't do anything. And even mourning over the fact of all the ways that we have tried to find our own way. All the ways that we're idolatrous within ourselves and trusting our own strength making the choice of what's right for me and what's wrong for me, instead of submitting it to God, we come to a place where we're spirit, we recognize we're spiritually homeless, we mourn over the fact that that's our state, and we want to change, but we don't know how. But it says they will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. It's this idea of recognizing I've got nothing before God. I can't stand. I, I can't earn his love. I can't earn forgiveness. I hate the fact that I'm in this place. But then the humbleness is saying, God, I need your help. I can't do it. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm going to be humble. I'm not going to try and fake it. I'm not going to try and continue on in my pride thinking I know what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to set that all aside. And I'm just going to be humble and say, God, I need you to rescue me because I have nothing. And then verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This word righteousness also means holiness. For they will be filled. And so as he begins this, he's saying that if we find ourselves in a place where we recognize we need salvation and we're willing to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to Christ and desire righteousness, desire holiness, desire for God to, to run and rule our lives, we will be filled. That's his promise for us coming and seeking for him to be our Lord. But it requires acknowledging our own ineptitude and saying, I need to trust God, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who knit me together in my mother's womb, the one that planned and prophesied a rescue operation in Jesus Christ being born as a baby that we celebrate this week in Christmas. I need him, and I'm willing to let go of everything of me in order to pursue him. This was the great gift 
of Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of salvation through death to ourselves and just trusting in Him. Humbling simply as we are, hungry and thirsty for righteousness and trusting in the promise of God to work in us and transform us. This is the focus for this week. The lights that we see on the Christmas trees as just a representation of the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. The gifts that we have underneath the trees in our homes it's better to give than receive, absolutely. We can enjoy our celebrations, but let's not forget the greatest gift given to mankind in Jesus Christ on that morning. That he is the light of the world and the gift of everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning on this week of Christmas. And we're so thankful for this gift that you have given us of eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's more than we deserved in our rebellion. It's more than anything we could have attained within ourselves. But you've rescued us from slavery to sin and death and given us life in Jesus Christ. Peace with you, though we were rebels. Father, let that be our daily focus, not just in this season of Christmas where we contemplate Jesus coming as a baby in a manger, but let it be the meditation of our hearts, this great rescue, this great gift, and, and let us fully submit our lives to your work within our hearts as you change us and transform us. And let it be a reminder that we are no longer of this world, but that we have been rescued out of it. Let us celebrate this birthday of Jesus. But let us do it with everything that it means behind it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand as we go into our closing worship here this morning. Uh, as we celebrate and praise the one who spoke all things into existence, the, way, the one that came down to rescue us. If you're here this morning and you are not in this rescued relationship with Jesus Christ, I need to tell you that your pre-existing condition is heading towards condemnation and hell. And it's only through the rescue of Jesus Christ that you find salvation. As I say that, if you feel drawn that you need Jesus Christ, that you're spiritually bankrupt without Him and that you need His rescue, I invite you to head down through the hallway to our prayer room on the right in order to talk with somebody about that. We'd love to pray with you and talk to you more about the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, we thank you and let us worship you.